in chapter 22 still. Um, we're almost, almost done uh, with this chapter of the confession. We are in, uh, particularly in paragraph 6, or at least part of paragraph 6, namely as it concerns what is called private or secret worship. Private or secret worship. Uh, Lila will be handing something out in a second, but don't look at it yet. That'll come later. Um, if you have your confession of faith, go ahead and open up to chapter 22, paragraph 6, and we will read it very briefly. Chapter 22, paragraph 6. It says, Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed, or towards which it is directed, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. Now, there are other things we've looked at in this paragraph. Um, in many ways, what we're looking at today is maybe not the main burden of this paragraph. The real burden um, is the idea of what we've seen as the spirituality of worship. Um, God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. However, as I've said of this chapter, it does not merely, although it's titled Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day, it does not merely concern the public gathering of the church and public worship, but all kinds of religious worship including, as it says, private families daily and in secret, each one by himself. That is what I really want us to focus on today, what is meant by that. So far, we've only really considered public worship, uh, the elements of it, what it is to look like, um, and understandably, that's really the main burden of this chapter. However, the confession does mention private or secret worship. It's not a major burden of this chapter, um, and yet I would say we would do very well to unpack what is meant by those terms. When this document was written, there was a general understanding of what private and secret worship should look like um, that today perhaps is not so different from how it looks from us, um, but we are also not probably as acquainted with those concepts as they were. Um, and we should note that it is confessional. Um, Family worship is confessional. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that more. Furthermore, <clears throat> um, we want to understand these ideas because it is clear that according to our confession of faith, not only is the gathering together for public worship a duty, not just for Christians, but of all men, but so also is private and secret worship. Those here are said to be a duty along with public worship. It says at the very end um, uh, that that, obviously, uh, when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. Well, speaking mainly about public worship, but I would say private and family worship is also a duty. And so it is incumbent upon us to know exactly what that looks like, because I think for many, you know, I think for many we don't have a lot of family worship in our families, or at least as much as we should, because for many of us, we never grew up that way. We don't really know what it looks like, and it's kind of like 
almost like how do you start? And so you just kind of keep on punting. Um, and so we want to look at that. The, the, the Puritans and the Reformed wrote a lot about that, and, and it's very important. That is the last thing to, to say here. Uh, what I really want to impress upon you today is the great importance, the beauty as well, but more the importance of private and secret worship. Now, on the one hand, as we've seen, public worship is the most important kind of worship. If you remember in a sermon um, some time ago, I read from David Clarkson, who was a co-elder with John Owen, and he has a sermon titled, Public Worship to be Preferred Before Private. And he goes on to give a biblical case, which is very good from the Psalms, of why public worship is greater. It's greater in all kinds of ways. There's more people when we gather. There are more things that you do in public worship, like partaking of the Lord's Supper, that you don't do on your own. Um, God, you, you can read the word, but when we gather, we hear the word preached, right? And so public worship is greater that is to be really the mainstay of, of the means of grace in our life. That being said, this does not mean that private worship is of little importance, nor that it is not required by God. It is. In fact, I would say historically, even when saints have been faithful to attend public worship, where there is little private or secret worship, either of the individual or the family, the public worship is also weakened by that. When there's a disconnect between faithfulness in church and faithfulness in secret or in the family, that is typically symptomatic of a church that is weak and feeble and heading in a direction that is not very good. You know, in 1689, the, the General Assembly of our own you know, confession in the Baptists as I've said before, that came after a very long time of very severe persecution, truly severe. Pastors were dying in prison. Um, you had to meet in secret. You could be arrested and, and fined crazy amounts of fines. It was very hard for the churches, for dissenters in England at that time. However, the churches had also become weary when they did so. And so when they met at the General Assembly... It was for the express purpose of kind of revitalizing the churches and, and strengthening them again now that that period of persecution had ended. They write in the published minutes of that first assembly, they said that they met, quote, chiefly to consider of the present state and condition of all the congregations respectively under our care and charge and what might be the causes of that spiritual decay and loss of strength beauty and glory in our churches, and to see what might be done to attain a better and more prosperous state and condition. So they met to say, like, we need to take stock, right? We've survived this, praise God, but not all is well. There's a lot lacking in our churches, and if we don't do something, it's not going to end well for us. Well, they go on to discuss their findings, what they believe to be the chiefest causes of spiritual decay. They appointed a day of fasting for the churches, and they say this, the main and principal evils to be bewailed and mourned over before the Lord on that day are as follows. First, those many grievous backslidings, sins, and provocations 
not only of the whole nation, but also of the Lord's own people as considered in our public and private stations, particularly that great decay of first love, faith, and zeal for the ways and worship of God, which hath been apparent not only in our churches, but also in private families. So the lack of of a zeal for the worship of God in the local church was also represented by a lack of zeal for the worship of God in private families. This was one of the great causes of spiritual decay. In fact, in 1677, years before, when the confession was first published, a lack of family worship was again especially noted as a great weakness among the churches. It says this rebuke, and this is very strong, but just receive it. It says, And verily, truly, there is one spring and cause of decay of religion in our day, which we cannot but touch upon and earnestly urge a redress of, and that is the neglect of the worship of God in families, by those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. So they specifically lay the fault at the feet of fathers. Right? It's those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. May not the gross ignorance and instability of many with the profaneness of others be justly charged upon their parents and masters who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk when they were young, but have neglected those frequent and solemn commands which the Lord had laid upon, upon them so to catechize and instruct, uh, uh, instruct them that their tender years may be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures, and also by their omission of prayers and other duties of religion in their families, together with the ill example of their loose conversation, having inured them first to a neglect and then contempt of all piety and religion. So he's saying, not only have they neglected to do their duty, but by their own hypocrisy, they have really, you know, um, caused their own children to, to have a contempt for piety because the piety of their parents is really a hypocrisy. It says, we know this will not excuse the blindness or wickedness of any. Those children are guilty for their own rebellion against God, but certainly it will fall heavy upon those that have been thus the occasion thereof. They indeed die in their sins, but will not their blood be required of those under whose care they were, who yet permitted them to go on without warning, yea, led them into the paths of destruction? And will not the diligence of Christians with respect to the discharge of these duties in ages past rise up in judgment against and condemn many of those who would be esteemed such now? He's saying if we look back at past generations where there were Christians faithful to train up their children that, that example rises up rather to condemn us in our neglect of those duties. A very sobering rebuke. And so today, the first thing I really want us, want us to grasp uh, is we consider private and secret worship is the great importance of it. Um, you know, so often, brothers and sisters, we are carried away after things that we seem to be, we, we deem them to be very, very important, and perhaps they are very, very important and good things. 
Perhaps someone might have a great burden to see the gospel spread among the nations, to see unbelievers converted, and they may have a great passion to be involved in evangelism or praying for people or or conversing with them, all things that are very, very good. But if you're doing that and neglecting family worship, your priorities are reversed. And in reality, you're working against your own stated great zeal and passion. We must spread the gospel to unbelievers, and we long to see them come to faith, but what about the unbelievers living under our own roofs? I would say, if our churches did no evangelism whatsoever, which would be bad, but let's say we did no evangelism whatsoever, but were diligent and faithful in family worship and took it seriously, we would still see a growth in our churches over the years. I would say, on the other hand, even in churches that take evangelism very seriously, if family worship is not serious, they may spark movements of a sort of church growth, um, revitalization, all kinds of things like that, but I would say it's only going to last for that generation. It's not long-term. Why? Because if it's not a priority in their own churches, surely the churches that they are planting, it will not be a priority for them as well. And so sadly, those movements tend to start off with great fervor and zeal, but they only go so far as the parents. It's not passed on to the children. Slow and steady growth will come from churches in which family worship is a priority. And also, where we evangelize. Both should be done, but we should not reverse the priority of them. If they are, you're thinking wrong. I think it was at uh, UT Austin a few years ago. Is that, a, is that a school there, UT? Is it a UT? Sure, okay. I don't know your guys' schools. I think it was there. Is that a graduation? There was an admiral by the name of William McRaven. He made a, a famous speech. It came to be very faven, uh, uh, fa- uh, famous. And he wrote a book along the same lines of his speech. But the gist of his speech was this. If you want to change the world, make your bed in the morning. If you want to change the world, make your bed in the morning. The idea behind this is he's addressing a group of very idealistic, bright-eyed graduates who think they are off to save the world. They're probably off to corrupt the world with all their crazy ideas that they're getting in school, right? But that's not what he's not, he's not uh, dealing with that, right? They're off to change the world. They're very idealistic. They're like, let me at them. I can't wait to get out there. We're going to be the generation who, do, who does things. But his point is, start with the small things first. If you can't do the little things right, you will never be able to do the big things, he says. There's so much truth to that. I would say similarly, if you want to see the gospel spread, if you want to see your nation change, if you if you just like spend time on Twitter and you're just like, oh, this is horrible. It's so horrible, I can't stop looking at Twitter and YouTube, right? If you want to see actual change, have family worship. You can be involved in political things. I don't think that's wrong. You could help campaign for a candidate if you really liked them. But if you really want to see long-lasting change, have family worship a priority in your homes That is truly the way that we change the world. I found a a portion of a poem, and this actually 
Hey, Dominic, you want to pass any of these around? I want to read it to you guys because I thought it was beautiful. It's also for one of my favorite poets. But it, it talks about the beauty of family worship and, and also how that is the great strength of a people, of churches and of nations when they do so. It's by a man named Robert Burns. He's kind of like the all-time poet laureate of Scotland. Has anyone ever heard of Robert Burns? Oh, how sad. In, um, in seminary, I won a book of Robert Burns' poetry because our professor said, whoever can read this, this line here in the best Scottish accent, you will r- win this book of Burns' poetry, and I won, right? So, um, but he is a very important figure in Scotland uh, he wrote a famous poem called A Man's A Man for All That. And if you were to quote that to a Scotsman, I would guess they would be able to, to quote the whole rest of it to you. He wrote, as you will see, in Scots English, right? So I'll do some translation for us. <laughs> um, so he was very big with like Scottish identity and nationalism and things like that. But he wrote a poem called The Cotter's Saturday Night. Um, a cotter is like a farm tenant, okay? Think of someone who lives in a cottage. A person of very modest means, uh, and yet he tells this scene of family worship, and it's, it's very beautiful. I want to read it to you um, because of what he says, and um, uh, I, I just think it's, it's very beautiful. Also, that picture is a painting. I forget the guy who did it, but it's actually supposed to be of this, this poem, okay? Burns was very popular. I'll read it in uh, a slight Scottish accent so you can hear it. You can't read, you can't read Scots English without somewhat of a Scot, Scot accent, okay? He says, The cheerful supper done with serious face. The cheerful supper finished with a serious face. They round the ingle form a circle wide round the fireplace. The sire, the, the father, turns over with patriarchal grace the big Bible, the big home Bible, house Bible, and his father's pride, once his father's pride. His bonnet reverently is laid aside, his laird taffet sweating thin and bare, his hair is graying and thinning out. Those strains that once did, did sweet in Zion glide, he wails a portion with judicious care, he reads some scripture. And let us worship God, he says, with solemn air. They chant their artless notes in simple guise. They tune their hearts by far the noblest aim. So they chant their notes. Their singing is artless. It's, it's not that beautiful, right, he's saying. And yet they tune their hearts. Their hearts are in tune, is, is what he's saying. Perhaps Dundee's wild warbling measures rise, or plaintive martyrs worthy of the name, or noble Elgin beats the heavenward flame. Those are all uh, the names of various hymn tunes in the Scottish, uh, Scottish Psalter. In fact, Dundee, we sing songs with Dundee. None of the other ones are in our, our hymnal, but Dundee is. It goes, dun, 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 you know that song? That's Dundee. So he's singing, they're, they're singing these. The sweetest 
far of Scotia's holy lays. Compared with these, Italian trills are tame. So now he makes a comparison with, you know, maybe the more fancy or beautiful music at that time where composers were in Italy. He may also be drawing a contrast between Protestantism in the far north and Roman Catholicism in, in, in the south. But he says it has all kinds of outward beauty, but that beauty is tame compared to the inward beauty of the worship in this family in this little cottage. The tickled ears no heartfelt raptures raise. Nigh unison have they with our Creator's praise. They're out of, they're out of step. The priest-like father reads the sacred page, how Abram was the friend of God on high, or Moses bade eternal warfare rage with Amalek's ungracious progeny, or how the royal bard did groaning lie beneath the stroke of heaven's avenging ire, or Job's pathetic plaint, not pathetic in the sense of like you're pathetic, but feeling sympathy for someone, or Job's pathetic plaint and wailing cry, or rapt Isaiah's wild seraphic fire, or other holy seers the tune the sacred lyre. Perhaps the Christian volume is the theme, the gospel. How guiltless blood for guilty men was shed. How he who bore in heaven the second name had not on earth whereon to lay his head. How his first followers and servants sped the precepts sage they wrote to many a land. How he who lone in Patmos banished saw in the sun a mighty angel stand and heard great Babylon's doom pronounced by heaven's command. And then he, he says, <clears throat> we can actually skip down, skip down to the very last line, he says, from scenes like these, old Scotia's, old, old Scotland's, grandeur springs that make her loved at home revered abroad. It's that last particular phrase I would draw your attention to. He said it is this simple scene, right? It's, it's not the, the fancy Italian trills. He says they, it's even like wild warbling, like birds, like their notes are kind of all over the place, right? There's artlessness to it, but their hearts are tuned. And he says from this is where Scotland's grandeur comes. You know, Scotland had a great part in the Reformation. Presbyterianism was, was the, the state religion. And, and in many parts, even though sadly Scotland is a very dark place, for a long time, um, that was a great strength of Scotland. That she was not only worshipped in the churches, but she was worshipped at home and in private. That's what it says. It made her loved at home and revered abroad. There's a lot of truth to that. Brothers and sisters, um, if you would have sovereign joy loved at home and revered abroad, we should be a church rich in obeying our duty for secret and private worship, um, and that will only strengthen the churches. Well, what I'd like us to look then today uh, is to consider, okay, so we know it's really important. Um, <laughs> okay, pastor, I'm really convicted that I don't do this like I should, um, right? What do I do then? How, how do I do this? It is a duty. Uh, it's clearly something our confession says will be done every day. Um, but what does that look like so that we may grow in our duty? 
Well, in order to answer that, uh, kind of to use as sort of a springboard and outline, uh, I want us to use the Westminster Assembly's Directory for Private Worship. I had several portions printed out for you today. I believe you guys have those now, right? You guys should have those. Go ahead and keep those. We're only going to read just the very beginning, um, but we will go more in detail um, uh, next week as well. But let's go ahead and begin. Uh, The title of it, we'll just read, is Directions of the General Assembly Concerning Secret and Private Worship and Mutual Edification for Cherishing Piety for Maintaining Unity and Avoiding Schism and Division. Okay? Let's look at paragraph number one, or actually not number one, but it's kind of the before that where it says besides. Besides the public worship in congregations, mercifully established in this land in great purity, it is expedient and necessary that secret worship of each person alone and private worship of families be pressed and set up that with natural, uh, national reformation, the profession and power of godliness, both personal and domestic, be advanced. So there you see uh, the term secret, right, and private. What's the difference? Secret worship is um, used to describe the worship, it says, of each person alone. Um, Today, we would call this devotions or or quiet time or something like that, which is fine, I guess. Um, Historically, it's been called secret worship. It probably, I'm assuming, I can't really confirm this, I'm assuming um, that the term secret comes particularly from the words of Christ in Matthew's gospel. For example, Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you, right? So it's kind of like individual quiet time devotions, whatever you want to call that. We should note then that devotions or secret worship is confessional. Um, it's something in our confession that, that it, calls it calls us to. It's not the main burden of the confession, but it assumes it. It assumes that it's something that, that will be done and it sees it as a duty You know, I would say in our own day, the emphasis is far and away on secret worship over against public worship and the means of grace. I remember as a young believer, this woman telling me, well, like church is good on Sunday. It's very good. Almost like (laughs) it's something we're called to do. It's good. It has its place. But the real rubber meets the road every morning in your quiet times with the Lord or Maybe small groups, right? Sometimes people will say, like, that's where real community happens and things like that. I would say it should actually be the opposite. As good as those things are, really the, where the real stuff happens should really be Sunday morning or the Lord's Day worship, right? When the Word is preached, when we can all sing together, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's when we really want to have the emphasis on because public worship is greater than private, right? Well, in that climate, though, kind of in a pushback against that emphasis to focus on private over the public, I have sometimes heard even Reformed people speak very much kind of disparagingly, if not even kind of mockingly, of devotions in quiet time or or secret worship. Um, Perhaps they mock the terminology of 
quiet time, right? Where is quiet time mentioned in the scriptures, they might say? Or perhaps it's, you know, the idea of like quiet, and it is kind of mystical language, I suppose. You're, you know, sometimes it's that's where I hear from God, <laughs> not in the sense of him speaking through his word, but it's kind of this mysticism kind of, yeah, and people can, can have it that way, right? At other times, I've even heard some people argue that there's no such warrant in the word of God for, for such a thing, um, or that it's some kind of a, it's modern, it's a modern invention. It's not reformed piety historically, um, it's, it's kind of something of, you know, modern pietism or something. Um, again, we might sympathize with some of that, right? There is still an undeniable overlap between what we call quiet times and devotions and what has historically been called secret worship. You have to be very careful that you don't entirely um, go out against, you know, in attacking the modern version, that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. At other times, and, and I, I am in agreement with this, um, there are some who discover true gospel freedom, um, where before for them, their relationship with God was really dependent on if they had done their duties the week before. So when you came into public worship, whether you felt like you could really worship God or not was dependent on how many days did I, did I spend time with the Lord this week? I remember talking to Pastor Jason about this. He grew up as a, a good Southern Baptist boy. And when you came to church every Sunday on the, on the giving envelope, it would say like, it was like a checklist of things. Like, did you do your Bible reading? Yes. Um, praying? Yes. How many people did you share the gospel with? Did you share the gospel? Yes. And it was like a big check of, did you do these things? And he said, for him, that was his righteousness or his holiness, right? And I think he was, he was saved at the time, but it was kind of like a little bit of, that's my righteousness. And, you know, if I come to work, oh, I forgot, you know, I can't, I can't really worship God today or something. And well, some people find a lot of freedom from that, that it's truly Christ who is our righteousness. And though we might fail in many ways, we are still reckoned righteous before God. Um, and I think perhaps as they think maybe about their past duties, um, there, is, there is a great fear, I don't want to come under the law again. And, and with that, I am very much in agreement. We don't want to make our own secret worship our righteousness, right? Nevertheless, secret individual worship, as can be seen in our own confession or the directory for private worship, was a staple of reformed practice, faith, and piety. It was understood to be a duty, part of daily worship that we owe God by virtue of being his, creator, uh, his creatures, and, and especially by, being vir- by virtue of being redeemed. Furthermore, as is seen in this next paragraph, it was seen not just as a duty, but as a joyous part of living life with God that you would commune daily with him even more than once a day, right? Um, you know, when you fall in love with someone, you don't try to have the bare minimum of time you can spend with them, right? Um, you want to be around them all the time. You want to spend time with them. You want to talk about the nothings of life and, and live together, right, in day-to-day life. What did you do today? How was your day? Oh, you went to the market. Oh, that's like part of living life. 
And they really understood prayer and secret worship that way. It was part of living with God, and it was a joy. It goes on to say in paragraph one, and first, for secret worship, it is most necessary that everyone apart and by themselves be given to prayer and meditation. The unspeakable benefit whereof is best known to them who are most exercised therein. This being the means whereby, in a special way, communion with God is entertained, and right preparation for all other duties obtained. And therefore, it becometh not only pastors within their several charges, to press persons of all sorts to perform this duty morning and evening, and at other occasions, but also it is incumbent to the head of every family to have a care that both themselves and all within their charge be daily diligent therein. Now, there's several things we should note here. Again, just note the heart of secret worship. It is a duty, but the emphasis is on the joyfulness, the communion with God. It speaks of the, quote, unspeakable benefit that comes from prayer and meditation. It calls it the means whereby, in a special way, communion with God is entertained. This is how you walk with God. You live with Him you speak to him morning and evening. Furthermore, it is a great strengthening to our own souls. It says it's the means whereby, quote, right preparation for all other duties is entertained. I knew a pastor who used to say, <laughs> used to say going into the pulpit without praying beforehand is like leaving, leaving the house without your pants on. Like you just, you have to do it, right? Um, well, it says this is how we prepare for all of our other duties. We might say in a certain sense, um, maybe not you know, without your pants on, we can say it more uh, <laughs> without your wallet or your keys or something really important, right? Um, it prepares us for those other duties at family or work, communing with God. That's where our souls are fit for the work. Really, this is what we see in the Word of God. John 15, 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Or Psalm 1, we read of the man who is, quote, like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And yet it's clear that the stream in which that tree is planted is the word of God, quote, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, it should be noted that because of language like that in Scripture, day and night, many Puritans, even, even in fact the directions for secret worship, concluded not only should secret worship be done twice a day of some sort, but family worship as well. Whoa, you think, hold on, Pastor, let me figure it out once a week first or once a day first, right? maybe once a week first, but once a day first, right? But that's how seriously they took it. It was just part of life that you had family worship, okay? And I would say this too, they weren't any less busy than you are. They weren't any less busy than you are. They had jobs, they had things they had to do, they had sick babies, they had life. Life was life, and yet it was still a priority for them. Next, note that it mentions that secret worship primarily consists of two things, prayer and meditation, prayer and meditation. 
We might sing a psalm or a hymn uh, by ourselves to the Lord. Sometimes I do that, right? It seems, however, for the most part, uh, secret worship is, is almost chiefly of prayer as well as, as reading of Scripture, but especially prayer. There's a place for reading and studying the Word of God. I think that that is to be comprehended under the term meditation. But the big emphasis is really on prayer. As far as what prayer consists of, in many ways, when you look at our own worship service, or really if you look at private family worship, prayer just kind of has all the same kind of elements, whether it's secret, private, in families, or in public. There's praise and adoration. There's thanksgiving. There's confession of sin. There's supplications. You know, for years, I had always heard of the Acts model of prayer. You guys have heard of that, I'm I'm assuming, some of you? I had always heard that that, Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, I had heard that that was very much a campus crusade thing. Um, I had learned it from a college pastor who had been very involved in campus crusade ministries before. Um, And I'm sure that's true. I'm sure they used it. Um, But that is by no means a campus crusade thing. Um, Those elements are pretty typical what you find um, when you look at old treatises on prayer. Um, Maybe not in that same order, um, but but they basically have those elements. Um, On Wednesday night when we gather, we have kind of a modified version of that that we use. Um, Thanksgiving, confession, and supplication. Thanksgiving and kind of adoration sometimes are merged together. Um, But I would say in secret worship, we should have those things as well. Um, God is worthy of your adoration and your worship. He's worthy of your thanksgivings. It's necessary to confess your faults daily as the the Lord's prayer teaches us. And of course, it's necessary that we bring our supplications to him as we ask for our daily bread. I would say that so often, one of the reasons why we get so very little out of prayer is because we put so very little into prayer. We don't enter into God, um, into God's presence. We don't, we don't think to worship Him. We don't maybe, you know, read a psalm, something of Scripture to kind of frame our hearts, to tune our hearts. We don't give thanksgiving for all the things that He answered, all the prayers He answered. Maybe they're now answered the day before. He gave us everything we asked. That situation we were worried about, he took care of. That thing we didn't know, he provided, right? All that, but we don't even give thanks for it. There's no confession of sin, right? Maybe you just had a fight with your wife, and you're just like, oh, you're you're so dumb, right? Whatever. And you're like, dear Lord. It's like, well, Peter says, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, your prayers will be hindered. So you better confess sin and repent, right? Lastly, spend time with supplications. Don't just pray generically. You'll only get generic answers from the Lord. Ask for specific things. Ask for things by prayer. I would encourage you, if you want to get more out of prayer, you should invest more in prayer. Take a moment to sit and think. Perhaps even take a moment to write down, I'm so scatterbrained, if I don't write things down, I forget. I, I just, I forget. But also, I found in writing things down, it makes me slow down, and then it brings other things to remembrance. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot, Lord. I was all stressed out about that, and you answered that prayer. Thank you for that, Lord. You know, you, 
as you do it, you, you kind of, your attention is focused, at least for me, um, and you're more fitted to walk closer with the Lord that day and, and better to fulfill your duties and your daily callings. I would encourage you to do that. Next, it mentions meditation. Probably means meditating while you pray, but also um, meditating on the Word of God, especially. Meditation is all, often in Scripture, meditating on the Word of God. This would necessitate some kind of a reading of the Word of God. The daily portion of the Word is what you meditate on. This too is biblical, brothers and sisters. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. You don't live by bread. You live by the Word of God. Eat daily upon the Word of God. Also, take your time with the Word of God. You know, I've, I think there's, there's a lot to be said about Bible reading plans that take you through the whole Bible in one year, okay? I'm not going to knock that. I'm not going to knock that. There may be something more to be said about taking a whole year to go through one book of the Bible. Perhaps find a, a very helpful commentary, not something all, you know, just for the academy and something... But something like that, read a chapter, maybe read a portion of a chapter, read what they have to say on it. Oh man, that's how you chew and get more out of the Word of God. I think sometimes if we slowed down more with the Word of God, rather than just like, maybe this is hyperbole, but what if there was a plan in which you could read the Word of the whole Bible 10 times a year? It's like, well, there's kind of diminishing returns at a certain point, right? Maybe if we slowed down and just meditated on the Word of God, we would have more out of it. Well, let's go ahead and, and stop here for now, um, because we're going to start the next section, and we won't really be able... To, I want to consider it all together. We would kind of just be starting and stopping. I would just say it has to do with this last part here. It says, Therefore, it becometh not only pastors, within their several charges, to press persons of all sorts to perform this duty morning and evening. So it's my job to encourage you to have secret worship, morning and evening, right? To be diligent therein. But also it is incumbent to the head of every family to have a care that both themselves and all within their charge be daily diligent herein. I want to look at what that, that looks like. All I would say is this. Secret worship, though it is not family worship, it is the duty of all in our household. It's really the duty of all humans. We are to train our children in it, even if they are not yet believers. As we've seen, they still have a, worship, a duty to worship their Creator, to, to pray to Him, to read the Word of God. They can't offer acceptable worship, but nevertheless, the neglect of the duty is even more sinful. And furthermore, as we pray for our children to come to faith, training them in this to seek the Lord daily in secret worship, is also to reinforce and hopefully set a foundation for them when God does truly give them faith and repentance. In fact, as a funny way to end this, to, to whet your appetite, <laughs> I'm going to give you something of a historical riddle, okay? You can try to figure out, you can, you can think about this. What is he talking about, okay? What, what do Metallica, the particular Baptists, 
and secret worship all have in common. All right? Think about that. What does Metallica, the particular Baptists, our guys, and secret worship, what's the connection between them all? If you can't answer, maybe you already know. We will look at that next week, okay? Any questions today on what we've covered before we're done? Okay. All right, you guys are just...